Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, Ronan Murphy will join me to look at the cyber threat level in Ireland and around the world in 2023. We'll find out what happens to your old washing machine once it's served its purpose. Plus, Comreg will join me to explain the function and significance of the spectrum. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Uh, but we're going to start today with the world of cyber threats because on March 9th, an event is taking place in the convention centre in Dublin. It's called Zero Day Con, and there are going to be experts from all around the world talking about the reality of the threats facing all of us. It's a pretty heavy one. It's organised by Smart Tech 247. I'm delighted to say Ronan Murphy of Smart Tech 247 is with me once again. Ronan, it's always great to chat to you. As we look at 2023, where are we in terms of cyber threat levels? Is it always high these days? I think it's always high these days, Jess, indeed. I mean, did obviously the geopolitical tensions with uh, Russia um, and the rest of the world because of the invasion of Ukraine has required organizations to have a heightened degree of um, security uh, in regards to potential threats. But I mean, there's also a lot of activity from coming from China and from North Korea and, and, and other nation states as well. So I would say, yes, it's a, there's certainly a heightened degree of um, anxiety in the, the, the cyber community. We did a special in October because it was Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And, you know, I went out and I met with the teams who were tackling these issues every single day of the week. Uh, And, you know, I went into the uh, National Emergency Coordination Centre. I met with, uh, you know, Richard Brown and with the Gardaí. And what they were saying is they catch things constantly and we never hear about it because they're essentially small fry or we don't need to know about it. But does that ring true with you that, you know, that there are so many potential attacks happening that, you know, if we were to list them off, we'd be here for weeks and months? A hundred percent. I mean, what people have to realise is that the whole cybersecurity industry, it's a very lonely game insofar as 99% of people are on their own whether you're an individual or you're an organization, even I would argue if you're a government agency, I mean, you do get a you get a specific amount of advice from relevant government bodies. But at the end of the day, I mean, you're looking after your own house, your own shop. Um, And what that means is that in many cases, organizations who fall victim to an attack are a compromise of some degree. Um, it never becomes public. It's never announced. So the amount of activity taking place, both successful and un- unsuccessful, most of it, I would say, I would argue over 95 percent of it, maybe even 98 percent of it flies under the radar. One of the things that we spoke about one of the last times we were chatting was in relation to um, individuals who are kind of tapping into uh, ransomware as a service and who are executing this. In reality, do they make up a significant portion of those type of attacks that you're that we're discussing there, or are they the small fry that gets caught and trashed pretty simply? No, I would say that they make up probably over ninety percent of that market now. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's what we refer to as malware as a service. So the guys who initially architected this ransomware um, opportunity, let's call it, they were the ones building the software and then trying to monetize the opportunity by attacking victims. They then changed their um, business model and they started selling their service so that they could maximize the monetization opportunities and very successfully recruiting um, individuals who wanted to build their cybercrime activities by consuming the software that they built. And that's just created an absolute monster of a problem globally for everybody, governments, individuals, organizations, because you don't know who is attacking, you know, I mean, it was always very easy to define who, who it was. And, you know, there was, you know, if people paid, there was a high degree of, um, there was a high percentage chance they would get their data back and so forth. But now the game has completely changed. It could be anybody. And does that make it harder as well? Because, not that there's ever, well, sometimes there is a logical reason for an attack, but it means that you're going to have actors who aren't doing it for political reasons or whatever. It's a bit more of a smash and grab approach. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because um, I only had this conversation with someone yesterday. Um, when you look at the different um, motives for for individuals or crime syndicates or governments attacking, um, it's you, you can map it out quite easily right so if you look at say the the russian hackers or the malware as a service type operators that's as you said jess uh smash and grab they want to get in there uh grab what data is valuable to them and then you know it's blunt force trauma type attack if you look at the types of attacks that happen in say from china they're much more um, sinister in how they're architected. They're, they're, you know, they they take their time. A lot of it could be spa- state sponsored, and they figure out a way to get into your organization. And they're typically looking for very valuable intellectual property and so forth. Um, so the the profile of the attacks differ, but what this malware as a service has certainly resulted in an increase in the type of blunt force trauma smash and grab uh, opportunism that that you've alluded to. Yeah, and something, and I know there's probably at least one person who's already rolled their eyes at this conversation, thinking that we're either, you know, doing a bit of fear mongering or we're overblowing it. And the the reality of cybercrime is people don't necessarily care until it impacts them. The reason a lot of people cared and were aware of the HSE ransomware attack was because it impacted them. When someone gets a phishing text, it impacts them. But with the rise in these sort of smash and grab actors, it means then that, you know, chances are we could see more consumer facing attacks. You know, they're not going to just go after the big bodies anymore. Yeah, look, I think what you're saying makes sense. I mean, people listening to this will obviously say, look, it's 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 fear mongering. Um, I think you only ever really appreciate it until you become a victim yourself. Uh, either directly or indirectly through something like the HSC. Um, I think everybody now is getting touched by cybercrime to a degree. And whether they've been victim or not, um, they're seeing it more frequently by these phishing emails and these text messages, um, which are trying to get you to click on these links. And that's coming through social media networks as well, such as Facebook and so forth. Um, So... Uh, everybody is becoming much more cognizant about cyber crime and the type of scams that are emerging. I think to fully appreciate 
the impact that it has on an individual, though they have to obviously become a victim. And and honestly, when you become a victim, um, the damage that this does to people in terms of their life savings, in terms of their businesses, it's it, it is it's it's truly frightening. So when, so that's the sophistication that's evolving on the side of the attackers. Are we getting better at catching and responding and doing the damage limitation from, you know, protecting people, their data, their money and all the rest? It's cat and mouse. I think, I think, and there's times when the defenders are doing a better job and there's times when the attackers get, um, uh, demonetize their opportunities more effectively and it's always a give and take so when a new vulnerability comes out or a new uh, attack um, methodology comes out you see that the bad guys may have a degree of success internationally globally um, organizations and governments and individuals will then react they will uh, figure out ways to try and you know um, protect their people and their data and their networks from that type of attack and then and then it, it's it's cyclical it just it just keeps on going you know the good guys have a few wins the bad guys have a few wins and it just carries on but i mean the reason the bad guys keep doing this is because obviously they're monetizing it they're they're making a lot of money from their activity so they continue to invest they continue to innovate um and then that's being supplemented obviously by governments you know it really helps countries like Russia, if they have successful cyber attacks in, you know, European countries, because it undermines um, people's fate in their governments to successfully protect them. Yeah, I do wonder about the, I suppose, the smaller businesses, so that they may not necessarily be the most lucrative. However, a, a ransomware attack or a cyber attack of any nature could be catastrophic for them and their reputation and so on. Do you get the sense that Irish businesses, the smaller and medium-sized businesses, are taking this seriously and they're investing pre-attack rather than coming scrambling after the fact? Um, I, I, I feel actually in the last uh, probably 18 months, Irish mid-sized Irish companies are really starting to up their game in this regard. And you know what? That's actually thanks to people like yourself, Jess, who continually highlight the issues and the types of problems that organizations are dealing with. And I, I do feel I never actually thought I would say this. I do feel they're starting to take it more seriously mm -hmm. Um, over the years. I mean, we've seen really devastating attacks on small organizations. I mean, everything from farmers to, um, you know, law firms. It's incredible the damage that that they've experienced as a, as a result of a uh, invoice fraud redirection or business email compromise or ransomware attack. It's incredible. Um, and I, I do feel that they're definitely um, improving their game. And I think on an, on an international context, mid-sized Irish companies now would be probably punching above their weight in terms of uh, improving their overall cyber security posture, I would say. Mm. And Again, not being doomsday, but is it inevitable that we in Ireland will see another attack on the scale of what happened to the HSC? Um, I would say it's highly likely. Unfortunately, I would just say it's highly likely. Um, there's a couple of very profound challenges facing the sector. The, the first is there's a huge shortage of skills. So, you know, if you're in a hospital or if you're in a government agency, 
it is difficult to find the people with the adequate skills that are needed to be able to protect your organization. So it's hard, it's hard to find the people. Um, you you supplement that problem then with the fact that technology is becoming, and you know this better than anyone, Jess, is becoming more prevalent in our daily lives than ever before. Mm-hmm. And it, whenever you introduce technology, you introduce risk, you introduce vulnerabilities, you introduce ways that that you can get hacked. And then thirdly, you've obviously got a huge increase in the amount of cyber activity taking place. And that's been driven by, you know, conflict in Ukraine and so forth. So you could argue it's the perfect storm. Um, And I genuinely feel bad for organizations who are in the spotlight and they have to deal with all of those three problems um, and, and knowing that should something go wrong, it will be on the nine o'clock news and that they'll be their feet will be held to the flames in terms of the fallout. So it, it's not an easy problem to fix. I mean, it, it is it's a challenging environment for for government agencies and for, for mid-sized companies. Yeah, and I'm sure this and many other things will be discussed at Zero Day Con, which is taking place in the Convention Centre in Dublin on March 9th. Just give us an idea of what people can expect and who should consider going along. Yeah, look, it's going to be a brilliant event. We've got world-class speakers uh, coming in internationally. We've got uh, US government officials from the the, the FBI, the NCIS. Um, we've got um, industry taught leaders from some leading global international companies. And they're, they're not just going to talk about um, cyber security. They're going to talk about risk. They're going to talk about best practice. They're going to talk about the types of threats that they've encountered and how they've tried to equip their own businesses and their people uh, with the best skills and technology to try and offset that type of risk. So it's going to be a really interesting. Um, it's going to be a very interesting day, and I think it's going to be. Um, it's going to highlight a lot, a lot of the risks and the opportunities that exist in the cybersecurity sector, um, both in Ireland and internationally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, as I said, it's taking place on March 9th in the Convention Centre in Dublin. Uh, Ronan Murphy, thank you so much as always for joining us here on Newstalk. Cheers. Yeah, that is Rona Murphy of Smart Tech 247. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we're going to learn all about the spectrum. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you want to get in touch. And if you're feeling a little bit meh and slightly struggling to get into a happy, clappy mood after hearing the weight of the cybersecurity challenges facing all of us before the break, take a listen to this. I think I can help people if I get my hands a little bit dirtier. Your mom wanted you to scatter her ashes, right? We know what they should do. Don't you ever want to just shake them? Well, we don't shake them. I take that back. Run, huh? Sounds so unethical. You're just going to burn down your career and take me with you. Coin flip? Get out of here. Wait, this is my office. It took you longer than it should have. Yeah, that's a trailer for Shrinking, which has just landed this weekend on Apple TV+. Plus. It's from the team behind Ted Lasso and Scrubs and stars Jason Segal. I've read great things about this and have very high hopes, particularly as we're continuing to wait for a launch date for Ted Lasso Season 3. But this looks good. It looks happy clappy and it'll give you all happy feels. Uh, it's on my to watch list this weekend. If you have any of the suggestions or if you like it or loathe it, uh, email me techtalk at newstalk.com. 
Now, we've often spoken about Comreg on this programme, but mostly in relation to consumer-facing issues. Maybe you're not getting the service you're paying for, or maybe you've been overcharged. They are a great resource. But there are a number of other sides to the business that many of us know little to nothing about. Garrett Blaney is a commissioner with Comreg, and he joins me now. Garrett, you're very welcome to Tech Talk. Um, We have spoken to some of your colleagues on the show in the past about the work Comreg does. And one thing that was reinforced to me uh, during that interview was how broad uh, a remit, I suppose, and how many things fall under the Comreg umbrella. Can you just tell me a little bit about the sides of the business that you're predominantly involved with? Yeah, so just, I mean, as as commissioners, I suppose we we cover the the broad range that Comreg has. So I think you've talked to some of our colleagues from the retail sides who are obviously there to protect um, and 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 support customers, you know, as they deal with the various operators in the market, ensure they're getting all their due rights covered. So that's the retail side of the business. Then we have a wholesale side of the business, and they look at the development of the markets. You know, we're now up to thirty percent of customers have direct fiber to the home. You know, that's you know accelerating quite quickly at the moment. But we put in the various competitive measures and protections to stimulate that market and make sure that the right investment's happening at the right time. And in the final area, and this is an area I wanted to talk to you a bit more about today, is the the market framework area where we deal with the spectrum. It's a sort of the natural resources that are there that the state has and make sure that they're um, organized and managed in the right way, again, for, for the customer's benefit. So just explain when you say spectrum, um, break that down for us and tell us what exactly we're talking about. Yeah, so spectrum is 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 um, I suppose that there's there's many different types of spectrum. It's it, there's a broad range, um, typically measured by frequencies. From very low frequencies would be sort of the traditional, you know, long wave radio, medium wave radio, right the way up to light that we all know, you know, at the high end. Yeah, um, and the the the, the radio the, the electromagnetic spectrum that that we manage you know covers everything from those low frequencies used in in the traditional radio waves right the way up to um what they call millimeter wave very high frequencies that are used by mobile operators by satellites by microwave links so we we cover the broad range and, and our job is to manage that on behalf of the state and um, it's a finite resource jess so you know, we, we can't make any more spectrum. So we've got to make sure we very carefully manage that and make sure that it's used as efficiently as possible and gives maximum benefit to people as possible. And I might talk to you a little bit later on about the international harmonization piece, because that's a, a very important piece as well. But I, I think maybe just to start, I mean, the the, the news recently, um, we, we just had a, a big auction and just completed that auction. So it provides 46% more spectrum to the operators in the market. And what that means for customers then is, you know, we're going to be able to have a lot more 5G services, enhanced, better coverage. Um, And uh, it it did raise, you know, a a reasonable amount of money for the state as well, 448 million. So there's a, there's, this is very valuable resource. um, And, and and that's that, you know, an important resource for the economy. So the the auction was a mixture of frequencies. So we had these lower frequencies that that are more penetrating and can cover longer distances than the higher frequencies that allow much higher speeds. And this auction had a mixture of those lower and higher frequencies. 
And so just to jump in there briefly, so when we had, uh, like we had Air on the show recently, we've had Vodafone on in the past, we've had Three on in the past, we've had a whole host of network and service providers on the programme and they're talking about expanding their services, so making 5G available to more consumers in more parts of the country. They can't just throw a dart at a map and decide we're going to go here. They need the access to the spectrum, they need permission to get access to this in order to roll that out, is that correct? Absolutely, yes. For the spectrum that they're looking for, yeah, they, they need to get a license from us. And, and as part of that auction process where we issue these licenses, they, they obviously compete with each other. So they, in a sense, set the price for that as part of the auction process. There's also also obligations that, co- that come with that. So as part of this recent auction, they have to, they have to cover 95% of the population. There's specific requirements for 90% of the motorways. And when it comes to sort of the, the low speeds, it has to be 99% coverage for voice and, and for those sort of essential elements of the service. So that's built into this uh, process so that we, we have confidence then as we're handing over the spectrum that there's a genuine benefit from customers in the process. And how competitive is that process? Because anyone who's walked by a bus stop or heard a radio ad will hear different networks saying they have X percent of coverage around the country when it comes to whether it's voice, 4G, 5G, whatever. Uh, So it obviously suits their business model and it's a great stat to be able to say that we have the most coverage in the country. So is that negotiating or that bidding process uh, very competitive? Yes, it's a very, I mean, I think the fact that, you know, that there was so much money raised for it is probably an indication of the, of, and each of the three mobile operators and imagine, so there was four winners in, in, in the competition. So each of them got a, a good slice of spectrum. So they all have a lot more resource now to provide better services, but we will test these coverage obligations as well. And we'll make sure that they do what they're required to do in the license. So there's a bit of a, a checks, you know, done by Comreg to make sure that everyone's following the rules properly and, and delivering what they'd say they deliver as part of the competition process. And can you then pull them up and say, well, you haven't fulfilled your obligation, so we're going to take back part of that spectrum? Absolutely. And actually, we're, we're, we're you know, in the process of taking some action against some operators for previous auctions, you know, r- relatively minor areas, but we just, you know, we, we, we take all those obligations very seriously and, and, you know, will, you know, chase the operators to ensure they fully comply. And this might be a stupid question, so forgive me, but you said that the spectrum is finite. So does that mean that we have all the capability we're ever going to have when it comes to connectivity in this country? No, I mean, when it's finite, I mean, it, it, so there's, and, and then maybe just to explain broadly spectrum, I mean, spectrum is basically no wireless device will work without spectrum. And when you think about wireless devices, you know, obviously we think of mobiles, we think of our Wi-Fi's in the home that use sort of, you don't need a license for that, that's license exempt. You know, you've got, you know, TVs, the, the car fobs, you know, satellites, um, there's a lot more machine-to-machine. Enter. So all of that wireless interaction all relies on spectrum. So there's a whole broad range of uses, um, and we ensure and allocate that. And there's an international dimension to that. So these are international standards. They're not, you know, so that we can buy uh, and purchase products from across Europe, and they're all usable in Ireland. So it's quite important that that um, harmonization piece is quite important. In terms of the value to the economy, we reckon it's something like 7.2 billion euro worth to the economy every year. So that's a like that's a couple of percent of GDP we're talking about here. You know, there's 19,000 jobs associated with this. And actually, it's an area 
if any of your listeners are interested in sort of building expertise, there's always need for, for more spectrum engineers and, and, and experts and scientists in the area. So it's a very, it's a very valuable area to, to build up expertise in. And we know that the networks are constantly trying to evolve their offering. And, you know, I've read a number of articles in the last few weeks about 6G and the continuation of that. Am I right in saying this is only going to get more competitive as time goes on? I think that's fair to say. Now, to be, to, to be fair to the operators, you know, the technology has improved in terms of more efficient use. We've got, you know, more and more clever people coming up with ways of using the same amount of spectrum and get a lot more data across a much higher speed. So technology is our friend in this way, but we need to make sure that, you know, that the driver for efficiency, and obviously you pay a lot of money for spectrum, you want to make sure you're using it as efficiently as possible. So that efficiency driver means that we're getting more and more out of the same amount of spectrum. Um, but it, it is, and there's big debates, um, you know, we, we participate in a number of international fora. There's big debates going on at the moment about how much more spectrum should be available to Wi-Fi so people can get better quality Wi-Fi in their home versus the same spectrum could be used by the mobile operators to improve coverage and improve their speeds. So, you know, we participate in those international, you know, fora and make arguments that, you know, we think protect Ireland's interests in all of this. But there are genuine hard calls to be made internationally, you know, about how best to to allocate spectrum to make sure that those standards, you know, Europe is typically, we will all be the same in Europe, but there are differences. So if, you know, if you buy a piece of, you know, radio equipment in the U S and bring it to Ireland, it can actually be quite problematic and maybe important for your listeners to understand and, and realize that, you know, equipment must be right for the right market that you're in. Mm. I'll give you an example. There was one time that somebody bought a, a you know, a toy and they were using it and nobody could use their key fobs in the locality because it, it interfered with it. So that interference piece and making sure that, you know, that the right spectrum used in the right way is also part of our job. And we have vans go around solving interference problems on a, on a daily basis. I want to pick up briefly on uh, the international discussions that you just mentioned there. I wonder, was there much conversation around the impact of the pandemic? Because people were obviously working in places that they normally wouldn't work. And maybe there was more demand for certain services above others during the pandemic. Is Was there any sort of trends around that that you guys noticed? Well, I think one of the things that, that we've been focused on, and it's probably a, a sort of a national rather than an international piece, is it, I think you've, you've put your finger on it around the pandemic and the impact. And I think what's happened is, it's gone from something that people would like to have to, to something that people must have. We're so reliant post-pandemic on our connectivity in all its different fora. So we're spending quite a bit of time as a regulator to look at resilience, to talk to the operators about what sorts of things could risk that connectivity. Why might the connectivity work? It could be a loss of power. It could be could many different things, cybersecurity, that could cause a loss of that connectivity. And I'll give you an example. We did a recent study there now on climate change mm-hmm. and how, as we see, you know, more extreme weather conditions, you know, to higher wind speeds, you know, more flooding, how are the, are the design of the, the infrastructure suitable to meet that and to ensure that we can continue connectivity and particular people need connectivity even more during an extreme event than they do normally. So, so there's a, we're spending quite a bit more work on that. And I think that's, the pandemic has accelerated the need for that. So it's not just that the spectrum and the resources are there, but also the way they're implemented are done in a very secure way. And we enhance that security constantly. 
Yeah, I, I want to pick up on that point around security and cybersecurity because nobody needs reminding of the ransomware attack on the HSC. And we saw the devastating consequences of that, that I'm sure in some parts of the system are still being felt today. Is the is the, the spectrum something that needs to be resilient from a cybersecurity point of view or what and how is it protected to ensure that we don't have blanket outages around the country? So the, the spectrum is the resource. So, you know, it, it just exists by the laws of physics. It's really the equipment that uses the spectrum that needs to be resilient. Um, now, to be fair to the operators, they, they, they do invest a lot of time and effort in this. You know, they, they have, you know, they are, you know, work hard at, at cybersecurity and, and resilience. But working hard is, is you know, the, the threat levels are constantly increasing. You know, the fact that there are, you know, the war in Europe has, has, has brought that to the fore, you know. So we, we, we can't be in any way, you know, sort of complacent. And, and we're working with industry to try and ensure there's more and more emphasis on this. We also work closely with the uh, National Cybersecurity Center as well and the experts there. Um, and we, we have a good sort of collaborative relationship with them. Mm. One thing I was curious about, in the last number of years, we've seen the emergence of digital mobile networks. So GOMO, for example, works off the air network. Do they require more spectrum to operate those or do they just take part of the allocation that they have to run those? So, so there's three mobile operators who, 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 you know, run the mobile system. So there's air, there's Vodafone and there's three then there are other um, players who can use that. So they call them MVNOs or virtual mobile operators. So they will they will sort of piggyback on top of that and provide more competition in the market, but they're still using the same underlying spectrum and the same underlying radio access equipment. And But it's something we like because it provides more competition and more choice for consumers. And that's always, we think, a good thing. Yeah, and so to bring it back to the consumer, um. This is something that, as you said, it just exists and we all benefit from it, but rarely think about it. Why is it important that Comreg plays the role that it plays when it comes to the spectrum? So I think it's it's very important that we manage this resource on behalf of the state as efficiently as we can. It's very important that people can have confidence in using spectrum and it isn't interfered with. And But I think the, the one last thing I'd like to sort of touch on, Jess, is innovation. So we see it as part of Comreg's role is not just to, you know, deal with the technologies that are there at the moment, but also to try and encourage and stimulate innovation and new technologies coming in. Mm -hmm. So an example in the context of spectrum is, you know, and one of the benefits of Ireland is we're not as congested in spectrum as maybe other countries just because of the population density. So what we do is we have a test and trial program where you can actually come, come in and talk to us. We will give you, spectrum to play around with and you can try and, and use new technologies try different things a recent example we had trinity they have a connect program and they've now set up a test bed to try new 5g technologies see what happens what are the limits you know how does it work in practice and um, and that's something so we we see ourselves as 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 not just protecting what's important there today but also stimulating innovation for the future and i think that's an important part of uh, sort of our remit. Yeah, just briefly, in terms of the innovation and, you know, I years ago now at this stage I was having a conversation about the potential of 5G. So this was years ago, back when it was just a notion. And people were saying that, you know, that would be the thing to unlock, you know, driverless cars, uh, you know, remote managed robots for surgeons in different parts of the world and so on. 
as those types of innovation come to the fore, you know, you could have, in theory, uh, you could have different players coming looking for access to Spectrum. Is that something that's a possibility or is that just pie in the sky? No, it's very much a possibility. And I, and I, th- I think it's really important for us as well, Jess, is that we don't have traditional players having, you know, sort of a monopoly on on, on, on the use of Spectrum. So, you know, we have, and go back to this auction process, it's an open process. Anyone can apply you know, it's not limited to existing players in the market. A car manufacturer could say, we want to do an autonomous vehicle and we want access to the spectrum so they could enter the process and get involved in that bidding process. Anyone could. I mean, we're seeing, you know, if you're looking at internationally, you know, you're looking at maybe factories who want to have some spectrum and use the spectrum specifically for themselves. You know, those sorts of things are facilitated. The test and trial is nice because you don't have to commit a lot of funds up front. You know, the, the, this auction is for 20 years. You're committed to the to, to the spectrum. But the test and trial allows you to try things out first before making those major commitments. But it's really important from a comrade point of view that it's a level playing field and anyone can play in this. And there's no, we limit the barriers to entry for anyone who would want to come into the market. That's, that's quite helpful in terms of uh, fostering and, and, and supporting competition. It's fascinating. As I said, this is one of the things that exists around us. We all benefit from it, but know very little about it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here on Eastock. I really do appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Jess, and for all the good questions. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. If you want to get in touch, as ever, you can drop me an email, techtalk at newstalk.com. On Thursday, February 1st, Samsung is going to unveil its latest flagship phones. I'm very excited. Um, I don't know if I've said it on the show before, but I bought a Samsung S22 last year. I was very excited. It was a lovely green colour. And I ended up giving it to my dad after a few days because the battery life just wasn't there for me. I'm someone who's on my phone all day, every day. It's an awful habit. Uh, And I just found the battery wasn't sort of what I needed. So I'm back using an iPhone, but I much prefer Samsung phones in general. So I am very excited to see what the new smartphone from Samsung will bring uh, because it will be the flagship. So it's going to be expensive. It's going to have a good camera. But will it have a good battery? We will bring you the full rundown here on Newstalk on Thursday and hopefully have one in studio uh, before too long. But before we talk about new products, let's talk about old products. I don't know about you, but I have a junk drawer in my apartment filled with phones, old hair dryers, different small devices that I'm either too sentimental or too stupid to throw out. But what about the bigger items like your old dishwasher or the washing machine? What happens to those? Well, that's where We Ireland comes in. If you don't know, We Ireland, with three E's, stands for Waste, Electrical and Electronic Equipment. And Leo Donovan, the CEO, is with me now to tell us all. Uh, Leo, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, Just to get us started, will you just introduce us to We Ireland for those who don't know? Yeah, We Ireland is the national compliance scheme for the responsibility for recycling of electronic waste and uh, battery waste. Uh, So electronic waste is really any electrical item that you have in your household that uh, runs off a battery or a plug. So it can be anything as big as a big American fridge freezer, for example, down to your small electrical toothbrush and everything in between. And uh, we have a responsibility to assist the Irish government on achieving a 
EU collection target of 65% of what's sold on the market. Uh, and then we also need to ensure that the material that we get back is, is recycled to a very high standard so that we can extract out uh, the precious metals uh, and the hazardous material from these products. So make sure that we both have resources going forward in the future and that we don't cause any environmental damage to the environment. And so can you talk us through the process? So, for example, if I'm getting rid of my dishwasher, what at what point in that process of me deciding this one's gone, I'm getting a new one, does We Ireland come in and do that process that you've just outlined? Yes. Yeah, so normally if you're a dishwasher, you're getting a new dishwasher, you go down to your local electrical retailer, pick out your new product, they will deliver your new product. They will also ask you at point of purchase, have you an old uh, appliance for recycling? Uh, and then the delivery guy will be aware that he is to take away then your old uh, dishwasher. That dishwasher would traditionally go back to the retailer and then from that point we Ireland would collect from the retailers and then bring it to our processing facility KMK Metals in Tullamore. From that point, then we would do a depollution and a breakdown of the appliance, taking out any recovered materials, motors, motherboards, any hazardous material that might be in the product, separating out any plastics. If it was, say, for a year's example of a, a dishwasher, but if it was a washing machine, we would take out the, the uh, concrete block, for example, and other items like that, uh, bail up the, the metals, and then we have a full recovery process where we're recycling in excess of 75% of those materials are going back for reuse. And when those materials go back for reuse, is that are, are those materials bought, purchased by somebody else to be reused or what happens? Yeah, the, the quality of the separation process that we have in KMK Metals is done to a Senelec standard, an EU standard, uh, and it's quite sophisticated. It's quite impressive. We have over 200 people employed in the whole setup between the collections and the actual treatment on site. Uh, and that material then is actually sold on the worldwide market, uh, coppers, metals, aluminiums, uh, plastics, glass. Uh, so it all goes back into remanufacturing of new products. How many people work on that side of things in terms of the, uh, you know, taking in of old devices, uh, taking them apart, separating the reusable bits from the non-reusable bits? You know, how many people are working in the KMK side of things? Yeah, at any one time, we would have a roundabout on the transport side and the reverse logistics. Uh, we would have up to 30 to 40 trucks on the road at any one time, bringing materials back uh, to, to the processing facility. And then in the processing facility locally there in Tullamore, uh, we're employing around about 160 people directly on this process of sort separating. So if we look at the smaller appliances like uh, your electric toothbrush, maybe even power tools and products like that. Uh, we do a pre-sort where we separate out the battery from the product and then the product then is shredded and, and separated out into its different fractions. So it's quite a manual process as, as well as an automated process to make sure that we get the best separation of materials as possible. I was looking at the 2021 report and it showed that 16,000 tonnes of large household appliances, 11,000 tonnes of small appliances and 3,000 tonnes of TVs and monitors were recycled through KMK. That's a good amount of waste not going into landfill. Yeah, no, for sure. Like just even put that into numbers, your your, your TV screens there, like that's 
200,000 uh, TVs that we recycle on, on an annualized basis. If you look at your large household appliances there, your 16,000 tons is equivalent to around about 330,000 units. So it is a big volume uh, and it's it's great that, look, the retailers are doing the take back as well as bringing back to your retailer free of charge. You can bring back your material to your local authority recycling centre. Uh, and additional to that, then we do most Saturdays, somewhere in the country, we have a We Ireland special day event, which you can learn about and, and, and find out about on the We Ireland uh, website, weireland.ie. Uh, so look, we, we're very much encouraging the, the reverse logistics and the take back the, the consumers to bring back these materials. On, on the small household appliances, you know, we have a big call out at the moment just for people to make the effort to bring back those small appliances, particularly to the electric retailer where they bought the appliance in the original place or back to the civic community site and, and, and make sure that, look, you know it's free to take back electrical appliances. So if you go to a civic and media site, you don't have a charge at the civic community site for recycling electrical appliances. What about things like phones? Because I mentioned at the top there, I've got a junk drawer of phones, even iPods and MP3 players. Are those types of devices too small to go through your plant? No, no, we take all all electrical appliances. So we break our electric appliances down into five main families and they are fridge freezers, cooling appliances. Then we would have large household appliances, which would be like your dishwasher, washing machines, uh, those type of large white appliances. Then we have our small appliances, which covers everything for electrical appliances. And, and then we have IT equipment uh, and and the IT equipment would be anything but phones and, and computers and then we also have lighting. So when we look at uh, the IT side of things, yeah, it is for sure challenging uh, to encourage people to drop back old phones and old computers, mainly because of, of, of private data that might be on those, those products. So what we recommend is to, to look at your original manufacturer and go onto their website, get the recommendation from those uh, OEMs to what is the best practice for wiping your data? How do you reset the, the, the factory settings on, say, phones? Or how do you wipe your data on a, a PC uh, prior to sending it for recycling? But no, you can bring back all those appliances to your electrical retailer uh, or to your, your local civic media site, phones and computers. Yeah. You mentioned the retailers there. How important is that relationship between the retailers and We Ireland in terms of offering and facilitating the take back of old washing machines, fridges and so on? Uh, it's been a huge success. We're blessed that the Irish retailers have rolled in behind the process right back. We started this process in 2005 uh, and they have been now the backbone to, to our tonnages. About 60% of our tonnages now come back directly from the retailers. The engagement with their customer base is really good. So at the large household appliances, we're taking back close on 80% of what's placed on the market. We take back in large household appliances, which is a very good return turn rate. We're not doing as well on the small, so kettles, toasters and those type of products. Uh, and that's why we're really working with the trade to make it easier for the consumer to bring back to the retailer those small appliances. And look, don't be afraid of going into your local retailer. Uh, they will take back your uh, small appliances. No purchase required. Uh, so look, do, do, do use that facility and drop back those small electric appliances to your electric retailers and to your local authority recycling centres. Okay, well, there's a little project for everybody listening to this right now. Go to that junk drawer, get all the old toasters, kettles, devices. 
if they're if they've got data on them, do a bit of a wipe, get rid of the data, and then bring them to somebody and get them recycled because it is incredible to have two hundred million electrical items diverted from landfill. Uh, Leo Donovan, CEO of We Ireland, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you, Jess. All right, that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show or if you want to be sound and subscribe to Tech Talk, you can do so on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.